in the early morning hours of March 22nd, 2014, just outside the city limits of Oso, Washington, 15 million cubic feet of mud and debris broke loose from a hillside, swept down like a river, eventually burying 50 homes and 43 lives. Now I want you to imagine, you can hardly get that, get that in our mind, but maybe you can get it this way, 13 million truckloads of mud sweeping through a small community. Two days after the mudslide, uh, the county emergency director told reporters, and I quote, this was a completely unforeseen slide. This came out of nowhere, end quote. Now, go back with me 19 years previous. Nineteen years earlier, uh, uh, Josh Daniel, a geologist based out of uh, Seattle, made his first trip to the Oso area in 1999, or 1995, I'm sorry. Made his first trip to that area because he was, he was commissioned to study the timber harvesting practices in an area that gets rainfall, y'all, on average every other day, and how it may be... Uh, lending itself to create problems of this magnitude. It took him four years of research and study. So in 1999, he presented his findings to the U.S. geological, uh, you know, the government agency uh, over these things. And in that report, he wrote, the hillsides outside of Oso, Washington, were likely to have, quote, large catastrophic failures. 1999. The, the mudslide of 2014 was not completely unforeseen and out of nowhere, y'all. The moment it happened was a surprise, but that it happened was not. As we make our way through these seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, I want you to know every church except two, okay, get a warning of sorts, a rebuke. They are, they are warned that conditions are ripe for a devastating mudslide. In other words, there are unseen forces beneath your feet. You don't see them now, but they're there and they threaten your very existence. Now, while the letter we're going to read today, the letter that Tiffany read over us, it was written to a local church over 2000, almost 2,000 years ago. We know this, that it's written to us, and it's written to us today. Why? Well, because its warning in this letter is as relevant to us as the warnings to Oso. Y'all, I've been in it now for two weeks, because teaching last week, but teaching again this week, this passage. And I do think there are hidden dangers beneath our feet. That's why, that's why we're in it that we would do well to pay attention to. Now, the carrier of this letter, think about this, you know, he's the letter of Revelation. There was someone who carried it and took it first to Ephesus. It's the closest city right next to Patmos, so it had to go by sea over there to Ephesus. It went north 40 miles to uh, Smyrna, and now the letter's going north. Here's the Aegean Sea. Here's modern-day Turkey. It comes here. It goes 40 miles north. Now it's going some 40-plus miles north again, and then the messenger is turning Right, he's heading east, away from the Aegean Sea, 12 miles in, and he comes to this city named Pergamum. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open them to Revelation 12, Revelation 2, 12 to 17. Revelation 2, 12 to 17. Before we read the letter, I want to do a quick survey, if I may, 
of Pergamum. We're not doing this all the time, uh, Rob, Michael, Bill, myself, for, for time's sake, but, but I want you to know we'll do a little bit here because all these letters are uniquely tied to the city, to the geography of the city, uh, to the culture of that unique city, to certain things that are happening in that city, and if I can say it in our vernacular, to the, to the vibe of that city. These letters are very unique to that, and so I think this will help us understand the challenges in Pergamum. Uh, I'm going to give you an aerial overview of Pergamum today. This is literally what it looks like today. Now, if you, if you, if you were, we're looking down on it, and I'm going to go from left to right across it to show you uh, kind of what's, ha- what's going on on this hillside. Now, how many of you have ever been to or driven by Stone Mountain, Georgia? Right, let me see. How many? So, so here's what you guys know. You know how you're driving by and you look out across there and there's this hump, like this flat area, and there's this hump out there, this giant rock. That's what Pergamum was like. Now, Stone Mountain, 1,600 feet of hump. Pergamum's about 1,000 feet. But it's this, this rock, this, this mound on the horizon, and on top of that mound was called what's called the Acropolis. In a Greek city, the Acropolis is the walled area of a city. So the picture mound, and on the top, there's this walled area. And within the Acropolis are all the, you know, this is, uh, these are all the nice homes. This is the museums. This is the art. This is the marketplace. All the, you know, fabulous ruins that you see within the Acropolis. Now at Pergamum, I want you to look at the screen with me. I'm going to work from the top left to the right on top of this mound. On the top left is Trajan's Temple. Okay, the, the Temple of Trajan. This is the temple to... Caesar. So this is where you go to burn the incense. Caesar is Lord, and you're good for another year. In 29 BC, Pergamum was the first city to get permission to build a temple to a living emperor, you know, because they required worship of themselves. Domitian is the emperor at this time when this letter was written. You remember how Domitian required people to address him? Our Lord and our God. How about that? That's, what, that's how he needs to be addressed. So you can do that at the Temple of Trajan. If you go to the right, there was an, a library in Pergamum that was second only to the library in Alexandria. And y'all, this was 200,000 volumes in this day there in Pergamum. If you go to the right again, is the Temple of Athena. Now the Temple of, uh, of Athena is, Athena is the goddess of wisdom. Greek city, multiple gods, right? If you go to the right, there's the Temple of Zeus, okay? Again, Greek city, many temples. Remember who Zeus is? Zeus is, let's put it this way, he's the god of gods, so, so Zeus is the one that keeps all the other gods in line. This is what they believed. You know, there's a, the, the brown area right in the middle is a very steep, it's, I think it might be the steepest in antiquity, amphitheater. But if you come down from the Temple of Trajan, there's another temple I want you to notice. It's the Temple of Dionysus. The Temple of Dionysus. Dionysus was the god of wine, festivals, party. Food. This is Dionysus, okay? And then down below the, the, the hill where some of the city would spread out, there was another temple I'm going to draw our attention to called the Temple of Asclepios. And Asclepios is the god of healing. And that'll be down uh, within the city. Now, keep your eye on this, okay? You notice left to right, you go from Trajan over to, to, to uh, Zeus. I want to show you what an artist's rendering would show this looked like back in the day when the letter arrived. See this? What's up on the top is the, the Temple of Trajan. Move to the right, there's a library, the Temple of Athena, and then you see the smoke rising from the throne 
of Zeus. And then if you come down from Trajan, the little, the, the smaller looking building, but these, these things are huge on the far left in the middle, that would be the temple of Dionysus. Make sense? And then I, I mentioned to you, uh, hold the slide for a moment, I mentioned to you that there's a temple below called the temple of uh, Asclepios, the, the god of healing. This was like a hospital. This was like a spa. And, 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 and the, 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 the god Asclepios uh, had, had a very unique way of, of healing. Now, I'm going to show you the modern-day temple itself. This is a little uh, a slide of the modern-day temple and a, uh, one of the columns there. And you notice the columns, the wiggly things on the columns? You know, that's not ribbons and it's not vines. Let me give you a closer look up on this. This is, what are those? Those are snakes. You see, in the temple of Asclepios, what you would do is if you were sick, you'd go there, and they had all kinds of stuff they would do. It was cutting-edge medicine. I'm not being facetious about that. But what they would do is they would put you in somewhat of a trance, and you would sleep in the temple. And in the temple, it was full of non-poisonous snakes. And that really comforts me because, you know, if they were poisonous, I probably wouldn't do it. But if they're non-poisonous, hey, what the, you know, let them crawl on you. If they crawl on you while you're asleep, they believed you were healed. They had healing power so that when you see any, any of you in the medical profession know the seal of medicine, medical is what? All the serpents winding up. It goes back to the temple of Asclepius. Got it? Now that's Pergamum. Now I want you to think about this. Can you imagine what it's like to grow up in Pergamum? Um, I, I, I'm, I believe this. It would be like growing up in, a, in, in an awesome city because you grow up and you believe that Caesar is God and, and the, the proconsul, the, the, the Roman appointed leader, has his, you know, he's, he lives there. So it's like the, the state's right there. And then you can go to the Temple of Trajan and, and do your worship to Caesar because you think he's God. And you believe there's multiple gods. And so you have a problem with, um, uh, you don't have, you need wisdom. Where do you go? The Temple of Athena, it's right there. What about, think about this, the educational and learning opportunities because in your city there's a library with 200,000 volumes at your disposal. And if you had a problem with another god, which this is the way they believed and lived, something bad happened here, I've got something going on, you know, some god's after me, where do you go? You go to the Temple of Zeus because he's the god of gods, you see, and he's going to take care of that problem for you. How about if you're just not doing well and it's just boring, life's boring, where do you go? Literally, you go to the Temple of Dionysus because there's food and wine and festival within worship in Dionysus. And if you're sick, do you realize you've got, the, you've got the cutting edge Temple of Asclepios and Asclepios' snakes that can heal you. It is like, it's like you grow up in a city that has the state capital where there are there are universities and libraries available to you where, you know, access to those things. Where, where you've, got, uh, you've got, if you, if you lack wisdom uh, and you're, you're religious, there are just religious institutions all over the city. And religion's kind of the normal way of life. I mean, it's just normal within Pergamum, this, these types of religions. And if you're feeling blue or down, you, uh, honestly, within this city, there's festivals all the time. It just fills the calendar. It's a... It's kind of a foodie city, quite frankly, because it's, it's available everywhere you go. And if you're sick, you're, in your city, you actually live in a city where there are a lot of hospitals. And in fact, the cutting edge of healthcare, that's what it's like to live in Pergamum. But one day, 
you, you begin to hear about this prophet named Jesus. Someone has come to the city and they start talking about Jesus was the son of God. And you're going, wait, Caesar, no, God is, uh, Caesar's God and Zeus is God. And over time, you actually come to believe that there is one true God. And the one true God is, has been offended by our sin and our rebellion. But he sent his son, Jesus, to die in our place. Jesus was fully God, fully man. And Jesus rose from the grave, and therefore, if you put your faith in Christ, then, then, then you know you will spend an eternity with God. If you do not put your faith in Christ, you spend an eternity apart from God. And you begin to worship the true God. Can you imagine how difficult it would be to live your life now in Pergamum? Because every time you look up on the hill, you go... Those aren't even gods. And it begins to cost. So when this letter comes from Jesus, you know, literally a messenger came to the church and said, I've got a letter from Jesus. I predict or I assume they were very, very ready to hear that letter. Tiffany read it over you. I'd like you to look at it with your own eyes again one more time. The letter to the church at Pergamum, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, Because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He Who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. To him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows, but he who receives it. Interesting as he begins, I know where you live. And then this phrase at the beginning and the end of the sentence, where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells. What is he talking about? Well, if I said that to you that Satan dwells in Pergamum and I described all the goddesses and temples, I think we would all go at some level, well, yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on there. It's certainly satanic. But we, we do believe that the specific focus of this is upon Trajan's temple, upon Caesar worship, uh, for a number of reasons. One could be um, this idea of throne. I want to show you a picture of the throne that was within Trajan's temple. This is in the Pergamum Museum in Berlin. Back in the early 1900s, the Germans went and took this right out of Pergamum and they put it within their museum in, uh, in Berlin. And when you look at this slide, it's uh, that, look at, you know, it's scaled so you can kind of see how massive this is. Can, it kind of looks thronish, doesn't it? And it's, you know, this is a place where you would come and you'd have to bow to Caesar. And uh, if you didn't bow, it would cost you what? It cost you your, your life. You see Antipas, right? Antipas was killed probably because he didn't bow to Caesar. The, the, the Roman proconsul, he was the leader, the governor appointed by Rome in the area. He had what's called the right of the sword. 
The right of the sword was that that leader, and you can take that down, that leader had the right, if you offend him, if you you do something wrong, if you don't bow, he could take your life. Just him, not a jury, not peers, not a court, him. He had the right of the sword. William Barclay can help us here. He says, quote, It was the place where men were required on pain of death to take the name Lord and give it to Caesar instead of Christ. And to a Christian, there could be nothing more satanic than that, end quote. See, knowing, you know, where they live kind of helps us understand their problem. And I think it's going to help us understand our own, which I'll touch on in a moment. What I want you to see here, and I'm going to do this a little different. I just want to grab this, these primary points. I want you to see the contrast when you read this, when you see there were some who held fast the name of Christ. And do you notice when he gets to 14 and 15, there are some who hold to the teaching of Balaam and Nicolaitans. Probably a similar teaching. Do you see the contrast? He uses the same word. Hold, hold. You ever seen anybody ice skating that doesn't know how to ice skate? Maybe the first time to ice skate. And when they skate, you know, and they're, where do they stay? Do they go to the middle of the ice? No. Where do they go? To the edge of the ice. And they get to the rail. And do they, do they go along the rail like this? No. How do they hold the rail? <laughs> you know, because you, you, you hold on to the rail as if your life depends on it. And that's the idea that's going on here. To hold to the name of Christ is to hold to all that Christ teaches. It is certainly to hold to his, his message. But he says, you didn't deny my faith. What's his faith? It's the body of truth Jesus gave us. And so they hold and they're clinging. But some are holding and clinging to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Here's the problem. What's the problem with this? You can't hold both. You know, what we find when we examine what's going on here at Pergamum is this contrast is there were some in Pergamum who were trying to bring two things together that in God's economy must remain distinctly apart. Said another way, uh, there were some in Pergamum who are compromising biblical truth. And this comparison is enough, he says, to earn his judgment, in fact, to destroy their witness. Scott Duvall reminds us of something very critical when we say faithful witness. Remember Antipas? How is Antipas described? My faithful witness. Duvall writes this, quote, It's important for people to understand what a faithful witness is and is not. It is not that we relate well to the world. Living and verbalizing the gospel lies at the heart of this particular passage, this particular book, and the entire New Testament. Now catch this. Living and verbalizing the gospel. Faithful witness means that we live, you all, in such a way that people do see our life. You know, that's different. But don't miss, it's also live in such a way that they actually hear with their ears our verbalization of the truths of Christ. That's faithful witness. Now I want you to think about what it would cost someone in Pergamum, that vibrant city and all those gods everywhere. What would it cost them to begin to say, no, that's not a God. No, I won't bow to Caesar. No, oh, it costs your life. Short of your life, you'd be pers- you would be persecuted. You'd be ostracized. You'd be put out. You'd, you, you could be harmed. Your kids aren't going to get the education. You, it's going to cost you economically, socially, relationally, all across the board. And so for some, the cost was too great. It was too much. And so, so they, they said, well, 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 you can have this 
and you can have this, and, and we can bring them together. They can be blended. And no, no, they can't be. What's the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans? Probably a similar teaching. Trying to convince Balak to put stumbling blocks. Let me ask you this, and, and if you don't know, it's totally fine, but I want to get some idea of, of, of how many of us do know. How many of you know the story of Balaam back in the book of Numbers, chapters 22 to 24? Just right, real, real quick. And if you don't, I'm going to get to tell you here, so spoiler alert, it's coming. But a wonderful story. So in the book of Numbers, we find that the nation of Israel has come out of of uh, bondage, there's two million of them, y'all. So two million people, like moving like a massive herd, you know, on the plain. They're on the plains of Moab. And listen, everywhere they go, they win. God conquers kings. God put, because they're heading to the promised land. The king of Moab stands on a hill and looks down at him and thinks, I would too. That's a problem. Everywhere they go, they win. And they're coming for me. <laughs> and so the king, one of the kings of, of Moab, Balak, he decides, I'm going to hire a prophet. And you got to put parentheses around prophet because Balaam, you read it and you think, this is a prophet of God. Not really. Both times mentioned in the New Testament, he's not mentioned favorably at all. But he, uh, Balak sends messengers to hire Balaam to come all the way over here to look on the Israelites and curse them. So he believed if they could be cursed, they could be beaten. So they go to get Balaam. Balaam says, no, I can't go. And then God says, you can't go. But then it's this odd story. God says, well, you can go. Well, along the way, he's going to meet Balak, right? He's on a donkey. Donkey's had all his life. This is the funny part of the story. You know, he comes to a place where the, where the path narrows. So it narrows down to where I can only go through this aisle right here. And there's walls on both sides. And as the donkey approaches that, and literally he's, the donkey stops, he's kicking the donkey. He's beating the donkey on the head because the donkey, you know, it's stopping and it won't move forward. And suddenly the donkey says, why are you hitting me? This is crazy. And even crazier, of course, is Balaam says, because you won't go through here. So he's talking to the donkey. You know, like this is normal stuff. The donkey says, I've been faithful my whole life to you. Why? I, I, I'm, I'm saving your life. And finally God opens Balaam's eyes. He looks and what's there in the little opening is the angel of God with the sword the sword, right? He's going to take his life. And, and the donkey says, man, I'm just saving your life and you're beating me. Well, they go on, they get to Balak and Balak says, come here and look. And he brings him to a point on the mountain and says, look at all those people, now curse them. And only the problem is God won't let him curse him and he blesses him. And Balak says, oh gosh, come over here. Maybe if you look at him from the southern side, now look at him, curse him. And he won't curse him. He does it three times. And then the story seems to just end and they part ways. But what happens when they part ways, we'll see in a moment, is that Israel begins to play the harlot, which means Israel begins to commingle with the Moabites. Now this is something I need you to, I don't need, but I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Numbers. So why don't you go back in your Bible to the book of Numbers. We're going to look at two passages. Go to Numbers, first of all, Numbers 25. Numbers 25. This is the end of the Balaam-Balak story. So you see in verse 25 of chapter 24, it says, Then Balaam arose and departed and returned to his place, and Balak also went his way. So it's all over. And then it says, verse 1, While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. Verse 2, For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal 
or Baal, Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. Joined, uh, you know, you think of the New Testament, what do we think of with joined? And a husband and wife will be joined. They, they like married, they joined. And Baal's a pagan god. It started with an invite. Think of this, think of the progression. I think of Psalm 1. It started with the invite. That's tasty. They ate, they bowed down, and then they joined. Now, why did they do that? I want you to turn in your Bibles to Numbers 31. So you go right again, Numbers 31. And and look who's behind this. Numbers 31, verse 16. Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of who? who? Who is it that told them to do this? Say it out loud to me. Balaam, y'all. This is the Balaam. So Balaam counseled Balak to trespass against the Lord in the matter of pure, so to plague among the congregation of the Lord. So it's something like this. I'm, I'm making this up, but it's something that could happen along these lines. They part ways. Balaam, okay, was to be paid by Balak. Maybe he didn't get paid. And he's thinking, man, I did all this, travel this way, and you didn't pay me anything. So before he goes, he goes, look, let me tell you what to do if you'll pay me. And, and I, we think finances changed hands, reading the New Testament about Balaam. So he said, look, you, you can't beat them, and you can't beat their gods. But let me tell you what you can do. They can defeat themselves. Look, if you'll invite and tell your young virgins, your young girls, to invite the young boys to eat with them, to come to the temple with them, and then they can have sex because that's often what happened in these pagan rituals, their own God will defeat them. And the men of Israel fell like dominoes. Fast forward to Pergamum. See, Pergamum's not going to be destroyed by any outside force. What's the threat to Pergamum? That Pergamum's going to compromise. Fast forward to Fellowship Franklin. It's not a lawsuit. It's not out there that's going to threaten Fellowship Franklin. What's it going to be? To, to begin to compromise the word and the world. Hmm. What are some things that they possibly compromised on? I don't know for sure, but... Certainly, they're challenged to us in our day, and I think they would have been in that context. The exclusivity of the gospel, do you think they were challenged on that? I think that there's one true God in all these temples and worship and what people do. They don't lead to the same place. I think so. The context of sword in this is the sword of judgment, that there's an eternal judgment. And there are those who trust Christ with Christ forever, and there are those who are not with Christ forever. You think they struck, there was a challenge with that? I think most certainly there could have been. Well, the exhortation is repent. I've already talked about that, and we have. We'll hear more about that next week. Change course. You're going this way. Go 180 degrees the other back towards God. And then the promise. Interesting. What's the hidden manna? Not sure. What's the stone with the name on it? We're not sure, y'all. You can study this and look it up, I, and, and, and there's some really excellent work on it, but we can't be sure. I, I, I want to suggest that the manna has something to do with Christ, because Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. So there's some measure of which, when we get to heaven, if you overcome, you're in Christ, you overcome, it, that there's, an, there's a fullness of Jesus that we haven't got yet. That makes sense to me, can't be sure. What about a white stone with a name on it? 
We really don't know. Um, if we stick historically, they did use stones as, as means of admittance into things. So there's some sense of admittance maybe with this white stone, a name on it. Some think it's the name of Jesus. Some think it's a new name that you get. Um, could be, you know, that Jesus knows you like no other. Your parents named you, but Jesus has a name that fits you from, from before, the time, before time began. Does that make sense? But we can't know. Here's what I don't want us to miss, though. There's a couple things we can know for sure. Let me give you three. The first is this. Physical death is not the death that matters. Physical death is not the death that matters. Never forget that death is the separation of the soul from the body. That's death. No one looking at me right now, including me looking at you, escapes death, y'all. Unless Christ comes again and we're raptured, but, but, but no one escapes death. That's not the problem. The problem is what the Bible calls the second death. You see, in the second death is when your soul, which lives forever, is either with Christ and God forever or it's separated from God forever. See, that's the second death. What did Jesus say in Matthew? He said this, um, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. There is, there is a second death. That's the one that matters. And for Antipas, he, you know, Rome figured since we have the power of the sword, we can rule over all y'all because this is the ultimate power. But we notice in the text itself, Jesus has the sword. And Jesus himself, Antipas, because of what the sword of Christ had done in his life, he he didn't fear the sword of Rome. And we need not fear death, you all. Because if we're in Christ, we step into forever with God. Physical death's not the death that matters. Secondly, I want to say this. Pergamum, like Smyrna, reveals the paradox of suffering. Y'all, Pergam- I'm, I'm going to read this because I, I, I thought, how do I say this? And I'm going I'm to read it. You can go online if you want to write it down later. But just listen. Pergamum is an extremely difficult place to live as a Christian, but a greenhouse for spiritual growth. Because almost every act of faithfulness costs them something. Nashville is an extremely easy place to live as a Christian but it can be a desert for spiritual growth because almost every act of faith costs us nothing. Now, the solution to the church at Pergamum was not, get out of Pergamum! Don't you know Satan lives there? What was was the exhortation? Hold fast my name and my faith. That's the opportunity you see we have in Pergamum. To be a witness for Christ. Now I'm not saying I like it. And I end up saying this almost every, every other month almost. Because the Bible teaches it. But I do believe that it, it's, it seems only when our faith costs us something. Does our faith really begin to give us something. I'm not talking about health, wealth and prosperity. I'm talking about life change, hope, deep experience of Christ and all he is and who he is. The question sometimes for us when our faith is kind of stale is. Is it costing me anything to walk with Christ? And then the last thing. The light of the church is not extinguished in an instant. It is extinguished by the slow and steady erosion of compromise. Isn't that what's happened here? You know, it's, it, it's a question to us. Where's the, 
Where's the voice of seduction calling us to, to, to compromise? Maybe what temple kind of do we tend to go to, you know, when we're in that tough place? Or what cultural truth is, is challenging us that's wanting us to blend the, the word and the world? See, our distinctness, y'all, if I may say this, always remember that our distinctness from the world is for the good of the world. See, it's not, we got it and you don't. Not, it's not, we're better. You're, it's not. It's to be a distinct people for the good of the world. A person who's drowning will never complain that there was someone not drowning who saved them. This is our role within the context of our world. Well, the mudslide in Oso, Washington was not a surprise, was it? And even though this letter is 2,000 years old, y'all, we're reading it today because I struggle to compromise. And I would think some of us do as well. And the warning's real. Let me ask you to bow your heads. Just want you to think for a moment and listen to the Spirit. Where's that place of compromise for you and what might the Spirit be inviting you to do? He who has an ear to hear Let him hear what the Spirit says to the church at Franklin. Father, surely there's a warning for all of this in this letter. In your providence, you have us studying these letters today. In this particular letter, we hear it. And we invite your spirit to show us where we could tend toward compromise. Where we could let go of your word and hold, hold even more firmly to a, a worldly value or truth. Whatever it may be. May we, by your spirit, stand in such a way that like Antipas, we would live our lives out and we would speak in ways that declare your whole truth. All you are, Lord Jesus, and all you've done. And as those choices begin to cost us, may we remain as convinced as Paul that in the midst of those costs, Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.